Welcome to Half Stack Data Science, the show about data science in the real world. I'm David Asboth. I'm Sean McGurr. So, Sean, uh, you know how everybody's been all over their Spotify wrapped recently? It's all been that, on social media. Wasn't that a week ago? That's done, <laughs> surely. Yeah, I, I was thinking it's a great product because it's just counting. Um, although we, we have said on this podcast that counting is quite hard. So maybe maybe we should give them credit. It's but, at uh, scale. I mean, it is at scale. A lot, yeah, of, window, yeah, a lot of window functions involved. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, th the reason I brought this up because we host this podcast on Anchor FM, right, which is owned by Spotify. So you get your own Spotify wrapped for podcast creators. And I was looking at our very meager stats for the year that reminded me that we've only released two episodes this year, this being our third. Two, is, two episodes is not big data, is it? <laughs> no, no. They probably got an intern to count those manually for us. How many did uh, we release last year? Uh, four, I think, including okay. the teaser for our, our season two. Ah, okay, what well, teaser? That counts. <laughs> Three full episodes in a teaser. So, and two so far this year. So, if we release one more episode, we're pretty much, you know, living up to 2020, which was such a great year. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, my, my other favorite statistic that I just wanted to, to share from the wrapped thing was that apparently there are four people who only listen to our podcast. So there's no other podcast in their listening history, only ours. Um, so thank you to those four people. I don't really know what to make of that statistic, but thank you for listening. There's some really devoted people. I guess, I guess my mum probably, maybe. Uh, probably me on some test account. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I assume it's Spotify only, right? I was okay. thinking it might it, it might be someone on a like a commuting device only listening to data science on their way to work, but but I think it's Spotify only. Maybe David, the, the, we'd really just do have some very devoted, singularly devoted fans. Well, and how else do you know you're a niche if not by by stats like this? Uh. <laughs> so uh, so this is our holiday special, and uh, what is it we want to talk about today, Sean? We want to talk about how we talked about some topics that we care about at a great uh, little conference in London called the Data Science Festival uh, a couple of weekends ago. Yeah, that was a fantastic experience. We uh, we talked to about maybe 30 people, Yeah, about 30 people in the room, um, which is good. Good that we weren't in the biggest room of the day because 30 people can be very spread out in a, in yeah. a much bigger room. Um, so we talked about what we called it bridging the supply demand gap in data science. Uh, I don't want to say too much because part of this episode, we can actually release the audio thanks to data science festival. So you'll get a chance to listen to our, our talk shortly in full. Yeah. And you took the, the supply side of it, um, given your recent work training future data scientists. And I took the demand side as someone who hired data scientists and now in my current role is talks to people who hire and try to hire data people. And like most of our live talks, David, uh, a small percentage of the listeners may have sort of fallen asleep or not understood what we were really talking about. But most of the people afterwards were like, yeah, thanks for, thanks for dropping all those truth bombs. And thanks for telling it like it is. And no one else really says these things. And isn't that curious? 
Yeah, it's good to have that feedback. You know, we, we often get that experience when we talk about these topics, which we think should be talked about a lot more, but it turns out at conferences, it's usually quite a niche thing to talk about. And we do get people coming up to us at the end saying, thank you for, for saying this because data science in the real world is so different from what everybody thinks it is. And, uh, and yet still no one talks about it really. Mm. I think it's getting better, but, but it's still, uh, we were still one talk out of however many at a conference devoted to this topic. Uh, whereas there were lots of technical topics, which are still, you know, the, the highlights of, of these uh, conferences. So one way to sum up our talk is it's really just a, a really nice 30 minute summary of everything we've talked about on this podcast in a way. But I think we found a, a frame of reference, a way of putting it, a way to build a kind of constructive tension with supply and demand to detect many of the things that listeners will be familiar with but to do so in quite a, a targeted and maybe even practical uh, fashion. So I yeah, just watched it before and it was, I think we did a good job. I think we did a very good job considering the technical issues on the day where our slides didn't work. So we mm. gave our talk without the slides uh, that we obviously hadn't prepared to do. Uh, but I think, I think we winged it pretty well. That's not the worst thing though, because now the listeners to the podcast who don't have the slides either, We'll just have to imagine the pictures with our voices. That's true. So, uh, so shortly we'll we'll be bringing you the audio of that talk. Um, when the video becomes available on the Data Science Festival channel, we'll link to it and and share that with you as well, so you can see us in action as well as hear us in action. But uh, the main messages are all in the audio, which uh, which we'll bring you now. So please enjoy our holiday special and our Data Science Festival talk. Okay, hi everyone. So we're David and Sean, and uh, we'll be spending the next sort of half an hour here um, talking about what we nominally call data science in the real world. Um, it sounds a bit arrogant actually now I've said that, but we'll see. Can't take it back. Well, we can't take it back. Um, <laughs> so the, the backstory of, of us and what, what we're sort of interested in is that we spent about three and a half years together working in the automotive industry, trying to make data science happen. Um, as you can imagine, the automotive industry is not digital native. It's not data first. It's not data driven. Um, and so pretty much from day one, we looked around and said, well, hang on, the data science sales brochure said algorithms and value and all sorts of cool stuff, sexiest job 21st century and so on. So why are we spending our day emailing Fred from finance to send us a CSV? So what, where is that coming from? What's this mismatch? And the more we, we spent talking about this and the more we spoke to other people at meetups, we realized that most companies in the world um, that try and do data science are trying to do it in this kind of environment. And so we did what any self-respecting pair of millennials with opinions do, and we started a podcast about, about it. Before COVID. Before COVID. Before COVID, before COVID. yeah. Well, before it was cool. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so it, uh, the podcast is called Half Stack Data Science, which I'll explain in a second. Um, and so although our paths have diverged in the last year, we're kind of doing different stuff, um, which we might get into today. Um, we, we still have a shared interest in what data science looks like and how to actually deliver it in most sort of legacy enterprise environments. Should do a survey question. Who, who works for a company or organization born before the internet? Okay, good. 
good. Hopefully, yeah. if you've ever tried to do the any rest data of you, work, maybe this is all foreign. We'll see. Crazy, we'll see. But, uh, we'll see how it lands. There's lots of people doing data science for companies that were born before the internet. Yeah, exactly. Well, so we'll see how that lands. Um, so the plan today is, is specifically to talk about some phenomena that we've seen recently, which is um, a problem and mismatch between supply and demand of data science and data scientists in the market. Um, and what we think the causes are, what the problems are, and maybe what we can do about it. And maybe, maybe hopefully that, some of that will resonate. So what is half-stack data science? Why did we call our podcast half-stack data science? Well, again, it was this realization that data science in most companies is not like the data science you read on Twitter and Medium, right? The top 1% of data companies will do data science a certain way. Um, but in most companies, you end up with data sets that have been collected by accident. So they're byproducts of business processes rather than specifically collected for experiments or prediction. You're surrounded by people who are not you know, necessarily techie and the company doesn't even necessarily know what they want from data science, just that it's a thing they probably should have. Um, and so in that environment, we're trying to answer ambiguous questions with uh, messy data, with success criteria and metrics that are completely undefined and we have to do the, the definition of those. The most important thing is interpretability because you cannot sell a black box model to a used car dealer as we uh, very painfully recognize. They can sell a black box something to you, but not, not <laughs> the other way. But not the other way. Um, and so in this environment, we, we kind of reject the idea that you have to be a full stack data scientist and be everything from a database administrator up to a web developer. You just need to be a creative problem solver. And that's kind of what we, we, we landed on when we decided a name for this. This thing, and, and we still believe to this day that still the majority of data science in the world, except it just doesn't necessarily get the coverage um, that you know Google, Facebook, Stitch Fix, etc. would. So today our talk is is built on a premise or a couple of premises, which I, I hope you'll you'll uh, accept with us that it is the case. So in last year, what I've been doing mostly is delivering um, data science workshops, um, part-time courses, long-term. Uh, courses, workshops, boot camps, and things. So I've, I've talked to a lot and taught a lot of aspiring junior data scientists. I can confidently say we are churning them out more than ever. So you, you, there are so many courses. You can, you can go to academic institutions, private institutions offering all sorts of data science boot camps. Um, so that's one premise is that this is sort of the peak of churning out people with data skills. Um, and at the same time, companies are still looking for data science the skills and the people more than ever. Um, anecdotally, I can tell that from my LinkedIn job alerts that keep spamming me that every company under the sun wants to hire a data scientist. So if those two things are true, we should be in a booming market where supply and demand are all absolutely off the scale. So why is it that we keep hearing two things? One is that candidates are really struggling to find data science jobs. They're going through lots and lots of technical interviews and failing at the last stage, even though they've just come from a data science boot camp. So by definition, they have at least some of the technical skills. And why is it the companies are complaining they can't find the right people when we have a booming market of both supply and demand? Does that, anything we said outrageously contentious so far? Does anyone know someone or has anyone been that person that uh, came out of some kind of training and then took a while to find a job. Okay, at least one of us. Um, but do you, know, do you know friends? Do you know, let's depersonalize it. Do you know someone, do you know a friend who you know is like really quite switched on and technically talented, but they just keep getting rejected from, from jobs that they keep applying to? Any more? Okay, this some some, nuts, some nuts. Nuts. So whether okay. the friends are us or the friends are other people, but yeah, the friends we make along the way. Yeah, personally, I know 
tons of people who, um, you know, they say, Sean, uh, why, why am I having trouble finding this job? There's so many jobs listed. Uh -huh. And uh, companies keep saying there's a shortage of, 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 of talent. I now work for DataRaiku, and our customers tell us that we can't find enough of the right people. And then I know the right people, and then they apply for jobs at places, and then they just don't, don't, yeah. So there's some kind of market problem maybe here is what we want to highlight. And uh, <clears throat> just for a little bit of social validation, I'll have to show you. Oh, you this was the me. one slide that was so necessary. This was the one slide that was necessary. This is a man from Data Twitter tweeting the same thing that we've just said, and he's got 250 likes. So. Which is a lot of likes <laughs> for a data scientist. Which is that. a lot. And so he says that it, he has a hard time reconciling the ostensible shortage of talent in data science with the fact that he's hearing that people are being rejected after what he calls arduous interview loops. Has anyone been through an arduous uh, interview loop of five, six, seven things, multiple technical tests, live coding? Take home uh, test. Uh, on someone else's VM on a different computer in a different country. <laughs> and it, it all seemed to work and they say, no, thanks, and there's no feedback. Anyone experienced that? Yeah, okay. quite yeah, a few. Okay, good. cool. Well, not good, but good for us. <sighs> You're in the right room. <laughs> okay, so what we want to do is I want to talk a little bit about the problems with supply. Um, is this, that's sort of the area I've been working in, and then Sean... You're churning them out. I'm not churning them out, and Sean is the one trying to convince people that they need these people. So, nice compliment, actually. Um, so, hopefully some of you have already recognized this, but um, you know, what we typically teach in a data science curriculum is a bunch of technical skills. So you start with the tools, so whether that's Python or R, you have to obviously learn how to type things so that the computer does stuff. Then we spend some time on exploratory data analysis. You have to learn pandas, um, tidyverse, whatever, a um, bit of data visualization, you know, matplotlib, ggplot, maybe watch that Hans Rosling video, um, and then some stats, right? Whether that's just a little bit of how to do descriptive stats or heaven forbid p-values. But then we jump into machine learning. And so proportionally, it looks something like this, where the bottom box is machine learning, and we spend like half the course he, teaching so he students. because he teaches. Teaching students how to do machine learning. And, that's not necessarily a problem in and of itself. That's the thing that's the most new to people. So you're not, they're not there to learn about bar charts. They're there to learn about stuff they don't already know. So you know, we do have to spend a lot of time learning the, the framework of how to predict things and various algorithms and, and things. But the problem is that that doesn't match up to an actual data science job. Um, in data science, in, as again, caveated by the fact that you know, we think this is mostly the real world. Um, you know, you do lots of other things that aren't technical skills that aren't covered in a boot camp. So things like data acquisition. And I don't mean like calling a nice REST API. I mean emailing Fred from accounts to finally send you that file he promised two weeks ago because otherwise you can't even get started. Sorry if Fred from accounts is in here, but you really should have sent me that CSV. Um, then we have to do a lot of contextualization, right? As I said, the data's there by accident powering these business systems. They're not clean by any definition. We don't even know what the columns mean. You know, why is there a sold date column and also a column called date sold and why don't they agree with each other? So that's, that's a week out the window before we, we get past that. Um, then we nominally have to do some data cleaning. I'll, uh, I'll get on my soapbox about that in a second. But we, we do have to clean data, obviously. Um, what we found in business is you also have to do a lot of ad hoc analysis, which is when a stakeholder comes to you with a sentence that starts with, can you just? Can you just run the numbers for me? Can you just validate my opinion with numbers? Um, and then you move into the next thing you have to do, which is stakeholder management, which is trying to keep that thing at arm's length, which is primarily what Sean's job was um, when we worked together, was to keep those people away from me so I could, con I could focus on 
the little sliver at the end of this table, which is actual analysis, that, that little 2% at the end when you do stuff that is actually measurably valuable to the business that you're in. And if you're very lucky at the end of the day, that little 1%, maybe you can do a cheeky logistic regression um, to, you know, to tick the machine learning box. Anyone experienced something approaching that mismatch between what they were trained for slash had experience in the job for Right. And so we, we know there's a mismatch, right? We're, we're teaching a bunch of technical skills and we go into the, the job and the technical stuff is kind of the, the baseline. It's assumed it's not the difficult part. So I'm not saying we should try and teach all of that in a classroom. I, don't, I wouldn't want to emulate stakeholder management in a classroom because my students would run away. But some of that stuff, we have to just be mindful that the job isn't technical purely. Um, so we have to spend some time thinking about preparing our students better for the real world. And so my aside, my little soapbox on data cleaning, um, there's a great little article um, from Randy Au, A-U, don't, don't know how to pronounce his name. Um, he has a lovely newsletter, I think it's called Counting on Substack, which is very good. And uh, he wrote a piece called Data Cleaning is Analysis, Not Grunt Work. And he argues that you know, most of what you do will be what we might put under the umbrella of data cleaning. And obviously the joke is we spend 80% of the time, boo-hoo. But that process is, you're the only person who can do that. You're the only person who can understand this horrendous, messy data sets that are, are scattered around the business that weren't even collected for analysis. Um, and this may be your most valuable contribution to the business, not the little logistic regression that you run at the end, which you know, anyone from a boot camp can do. It's the non-technical stuff. It's the, the really digging into how the business processes translate to the data sets that you work with. Um, that's really where the value is. Um, so data cleaning makes it sound like it's a sort of janitorial, annoying thing we just have to do, but actually it's the most valuable, um, I think. So why does any of this, this stuff matter around supply? Well, students from feedback on our courses, you know, they want two things. They want lots of cool machine learning because they heard that that's what data science is all about, but they also want to be employed at the end. And as we just discussed, those two things are sometimes at odds with each other. So as educators, we can try and move the needle and give them like realistic data, realistic projects, and try and prepare them better for the real world. But there's only so much you can do as an educator because you still have to teach the technical skills. That's the baseline. That's assumed. You know, you can't go into data science not knowing some of that stuff. Um, and then Sean will tell us about maybe the other end. So maybe we can make our graduates better, we can improve the quality of the supply, but the quality of the demand also has to come in and meet halfway. Cool, so I'm taking the demand side of this equation. So I recruited David as a data scientist on that team and he was an awesome person to hire and looking back, um, it's mostly for all the things other than machine learning experience that, you know, uh, David got the job over other, over other people. Um, and so if you think what, we, what David was just talking about, that mismatch between what people are trained in and then what the job is, it's basically the same when companies advertise roles, right? So who's seen a job advertisement that was very, very heavy on all the algorithms that they want you to know? I guess we wrote this before that Zillow fake scandal about machine learning and the profit package. But um, yeah, who's seen a job advertisement that was you know, pretty light on what the actual day-to-day -day of the job is and very, very heavy on a long list of acronyms and things, some of which you've heard of that you may need to do. 
Okay. I once saw it so bad that the recruitment had actually copied and pasted the whole list twice. And that's, I took a screenshot of that and I sent that to my friends coming out of all kinds of training when they're pulling their hair out about not being able to get a job. It's like, you know, sometimes the person doing the hiring or putting together the position description knows quite little. And so when they accidentally copy and paste it, they don't know that, you know, AWS and AWS is actually the same thing. So we have actually the same problem when companies try and hire people that they're doing a very terrible job of it. And when I started to hire people and realized uh, that this is a problem, I tried to exert as much control as my organization you know, would allow um, on how we advertise the role. So there's always some kind of compulsory corporate boilerplate. But if you're out there hiring or if you can influence someone hiring, just try and get them to recognize this problem we're talking about and to frame their jobs and advertise their jobs to actually focus on what the job is. That sounds kind of crazy. Advertise the actual job, not the thing that will reinforce this problem of people uh, seeing job adverts, going to people training who try and say, can I teach you a little bit about what the real world is actually like? And they go, no, I want more algorithms, please. Um, so basically, you know, anytime you see a market failure like this, look for like a, a common information problem on both sides, which is just kind of like a, a mirror image of it. Um, and another problem that, uh, oh, it's another cool, one, one more cool picture. This is a tree with some apples on it. But the title of the slide is, the lowest hanging fruit has already fallen off the tree. So when you, um, particularly when we were the first data scientists and in a company that maybe didn't need data science quite when they hired us. Um, like, oh, they didn't know at the time. They didn't know at the time. We had to tell them without getting fired. Um, um, you know, if you ever ask someone, a data scientist or a data scientist, what, what use cases should I go after? What, what problems should I take? People say, go after the low, low, low hanging fruit, yeah? Like, why would you not? If there's like apples right there, you just grab those apples. Don't go for those apples. You need a ladder, you might fall over. Um, well, when, when I interviewed for the job, either you or your boss told me the fruit is so low hanging, we're picking it up off the floor. And I thought, oh, that's great, that sounds good. But the problem with the low hanging fruit that's already fallen on the ground is that it may be like rotting. And, and one of my colleagues at Dataraku took it a step further and said, it's already been consumed by some other parasitic process. So that, that problem of getting that spreadsheet from Fred of that data that you need to do that forecast that someone asked you to do, and you were like, that sounds like low-hanging fruit. I just do auto.arima, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah, you, you did that in an afternoon, and then Literally we were trying to convince that. finance to, <laughs> to use, use that <laughs> insight for what well, we gave up eventually. But, um, the measurably better numbers. But we didn't recognize our true competition. right? So if you're a leading data scientist or any data scientist trying to choose what to work on, and you see, oh, we can't forecast this really easy thing. And I can do it so easily. And it's such low-hanging fruit that I should do that. And then I can just throw all the algorithms at it. Um, we're all actually reinforcing this supply-demand uh, problem because we're trying to fight battles and win uh, victories where someone's actually already doing that job. Once you subtract all of that low-hanging fruit that's already fallen off the tree, from the big list of use cases for data science out in your organization, there's a lot less to work on 
which is uh, an awkward thing to realize partway through when you build all the things that predict all the things that the business said they wanted and then they don't use them because they've already got substitutes which are probably quite crappy but they exist, right? That's the problem. And so really it's the medium to high inaccessible fruit is, is where most of the value is. So um, how does that, tell, help me connect that big rant to, oh, that's the next slide. This is why slides can be useful because they help remind the speaker where they are. And so that can, you can get pretty down and depressed if, even if you've got the job through that terrible process of getting the job and then realizing that the job is not what was advertised or what you trained for. But it leads to this thing called, uh, I call it the equilibrium of low expectations. Uh, it's two great uh, XKCD comics on the screen that you can't see. One, one is showing that like a lot of cool data science -y stuff, if you just did it manually, instead an algorithm did it, people would be like, You're, that's amazing, I love AI, let's do more of that. But you did it manually, because it took like three seconds for you to click the right button in Excel, or whatever. And then the other end, when people have truly challenging things, the not low-hanging fruit, you're like, wow, phew, I'll need a research team, and it'll take five years. And so, like, if we don't solve this problem as a field, right, we're just gonna stay in this equilibrium where a lot of what we do, if we just did it in Excel or Outlook, people wouldn't know and they'd still love us, but we wouldn't have used our training. Or we work on very long-running projects and anyone worked on a long-running project that they really believed in because oh, it's got to be fundamental to the business um, and then it never really goes, goes, goes anywhere. So that's the, that's the consequence. And think about it this way, if you're not in this room, if you're a stakeholder l listening to this conversation and you look at the data science field, whatever that is, you see high failure rates of projects, right? Lots of stuff doesn't make it into production for one reason or other. High salaries and increasing salaries and high turnover, like people stay in data science jobs a year or two and then they, they flip on. So if you were a CFO, if you were not a data scientist, what would you do? There's a group of people complaining about how tough their life is and they're paid a lot of money, they change jobs and get pay increases each time they do, assuming they got a job in the first place, and then most of the work they do doesn't create value, you might be hard pressed to give people your most challenging problems from the, from the top of the tree and you might say, oh, Fred, give Fred some help. Fred needs some help with his, with his spreadsheet. So let's just, um, when we're thinking through this search for value and how to hire the right people, let's put ourselves in the shoe, shoes of the, of the people who run the organization. Um, uh, so that hopefully makes everyone feel really good after 20, 25 minutes about like the state of the world. But there's lots of nods, so like this is a common thing that's happening, right? What can we do, what can we do about it? Mm. Does anyone know what, what can we do about that? What can we do about that? Please. Ask people what they want to work on and ask people what they need is good. If only they had a way of communicating because remember we've trained all of the data scientists to talk about XGBoost and neural network parameter tuning. Um, but I like where that's going. Mm. Any other ideas on what we can do? We could maybe define what data science is or? Ooh, not again. Maybe, maybe we need a new Venn diagram, that's what we a need. A new Venn, another, yeah, yeah. yeah. Even more overlapping areas. Um, 
But I think we've got some ideas. Don't yeah, we? so for, from the supply side, right, as I said, what, one of the things you can do is try and give your students more realistic problems to work on that more closely match the kinds of things they'll see in the real world. You know, stop predicting Titanic survivors, because even if you work for a cruise liner, probably no one's going to ask you to predict if your customers are going to die on It this was cruise. good to be rich on the Titanic. <laughs> that'll, be, uh, that'll be 25 grand. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> I really Besides. hate that data set. Same applies, I guess, if you, if you are an employer, if you're managing or leading a team or growing junior data scientists into seniors, right? Think about giving them work that develops the full set of skills. Mm. And so what we, what we had on this slide was oh, from a, an article called definitely, definitely kind of The Tent Poles of Data Science by Roger Peng, who's co-host of the Not So Standard Deviations yes. podcast. Again, internet person validating us. Um, so he said that data science requires more than the technical skills. So he, he talks about things like design thinking, right? So empathize with your users, i.e. work on the thing that actually will deliver some value. Um, okay, he talks about workflows and transforming and processing data. Obviously, technical skill, very important. He talks about human relationships and negotiating them, right? Stakeholder management. Not something you can well, necessarily learn in the classroom. But yeah, we did, we did we sign up to have an uh, argument with the CFO about CSVs? Probably not, but that, that happens. Um, okay, yeah, he says statistical methods, obviously. They're very important, although he calls it quantifying evidence, which is a, a nice way to put it. Because um, often the decision comes to you, and you're the one who's supposed to create the evidence for that decision that the stakeholders already decided to do anyway. Um, so that's a difficult one. And then talking about narratives and stories. So only two of these five things are even technical. So what we can try and do is, is be more holistic about what kind of data science we, we teach in the classroom and what kind of things people are expected to do. Um, and yeah, obviously courses have mostly time to teach the technical stuff. But I mean, we were very surprised about the number of candidates that didn't have any kind of portfolio work to show. Like just a report on a data problem that you did showing you, you know, how you get the data, how you even translate a question into a data problem, run whatever algorithms, and then present the, the results in a way that's actually answering your question to begin with. And that doesn't sound like a very hard thing to do since that is the job. But yeah. what I always encourage students to do is just do lots of little projects, even if it's like optimizing your fantasy football team. It doesn't matter. But just show that you have a, a question, you can answer it with data, and you can present it back in a way that non-data people will understand. And for me, as a as a former hiring manager, just having any of that evidence will immediately, well, when I was last hired someone two-ish, one, two years ago, um, just literally having any work that you can show that has some kind of number and words in it puts you in the top 10% mm. already. So um, uh, in 2017, um, um, you know, 50 or 100 people applied for the job that, that, that David got. And my very uh, blunt but effective screening mechanism was, thank you for your application. Can you share with me anything you have ever worked on in the history of your life? And most, <laughs> more than half of people are like, sorry, I work for a bank, and so I can't tell you anything I work on. And so how am I going to validate your ability to apply design thinking, whatever you call it, however you learned it, how am I going to understand the negotiation of human relationships beyond that kind of interview question? Tell me about a time when, you know, like I actually want to know how you did that in a data problem as well. And then, you know, the last point that, that Roger makes in this list, transformation of data analytic information into coherent narratives and stories. 
right? Because ultimately, you know, the CFO is not the one calling the API or looking at the CSV of scored customer records, right? They want a story at the end. And so I think it's interesting that like five years after I hired you, people still are not doing some of the work that they claim to have been trained in and putting it on the internet. It's like, it was easy five years ago. It's even easier now. Maybe it was difficult 10, 20 years ago to, in whatever set of tools that you know how to do, publish something about literally any problem on earth that you care about, showing that you can frame a problem, get some data, do some stuff to it, and put that result into some kind of narrative, which could be a single graph with a nicely summarized insight that you want someone to take from that. And then if you've already got the job, and you're now freaked out about, have I made the right choice? Um, and you're trying to do your job better inside the organization, um, there's some very awkward questions that you should ask your boss about the work that you're doing. If you're feeling like, you know, some of what we've said today resonates, and, and, and you feel that these other skills are not being developed enough in your own career, right? Because the algorithms, the code, that's the easy part. Right? It's fewer of the five items, and it's the easy part, and it's so easy to learn those things compared to 10, 20 years ago in all these different venues, free, paid, online, offline, whatever. All these other things we've been talking about are really hard to learn, and they're best learned from experience. So awkward questions to ask your manager if you don't feel that they are invested in developing those skills. You know, hey boss, if our slow-burning, long-running investigation into XYZ is getting no traction, Maybe we should can that project because it's not addressing any underlying business uh, challenge. And we've all and I've done it to David. I've made him work longer on things than I, I should have. We're still we're still friends because we we killed stuff on time. And um, there's another another thing you can ask. So, oh, we're talking we're talking in our team a lot about oh we got to get models in production. But hey, boss, um, if they were in production, would anyone call that API? Would yeah. anyone do anything differently anywhere would anyone, in the business? Would any customer Please. or colleague decision <laughs> or behavior change, right? So it's not just about designing great models and experimenting and then productionizing them technically. Like if, if, if nothing ever happens because of that, you were paid to do something uh, uh, pointless. And then another awkward thing to ask your boss is, hey boss, who like owns time and resources and value in this company, and are we sufficiently connected to them? Or are we off in some weird closet on the org chart under strategy or Worst future finance. strategy? Or hey, finance could be the right place to be, right? I'm not saying you know, we like Fred after all, but you know, um, and how do we convince those people that we need to spend at least a little bit of time on the fun, exciting R&D stuff, right? But also actually spend the rest of our time doing something valuable, because not every person who might be your boss uh, ask those questions of, of their own boss. I guess if we're also happy to finally get that data science job that we spent all that time training for and then we survived that first cut, right? It may feel very awkward to ask these questions of your boss, but you know, I just call that aligning the work you do with how your organization thinks about time and value. And so our closing statement to you was going to be, <clears throat> you're smart people, you'll figure it out. And that, means, that said to them? That means, that means two things, right? One is that, right, it is our job to figure it out because at the end of the day, we're 
trying to stay employed, so we have to figure out how to deliver value to an organization. But also we're sick of hearing that from internal stakeholders who think that it's your job to figure out what's valuable for the company when it's not. So that's our sort of closing, um, closing thought, and thank you so much. We've got a bit of Q&A time. We also have yellow and black branding. Yeah, we also have yellow and black branding. Thank you. Thank you. But yeah, we've, I think we've got five, five plus minutes for questions. Yeah. So. Thank you, David and Sean. If anybody has any questions, please raise their hand and I'll come to you. Comments too, if it's more of a, this <laughs> is more of a comment than a question. <laughs> I don't know if we have time I'll for that Right, so uh, first of all, I agree with pretty much all you ranted about. <laughs> um, and secondly, Thanks for nodding while we're talking. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, thanks to everyone who was nodding. Wouldn't it be more useful to, to basically teach people in boot camps frustration tolerance and data cleaning until the end of days, plus documenting it for no apparent reason? What would happen to that company you work for, David, if that was the... No, my, my students would cry if I made them do that. I mean, I know it's realistic, but I, I do make them do more data cleaning than I think they see on other boot camps. Before um, the pandemic, we were talking a lot like, okay, we go to these conferences, people not along. How do we monetize your nonce? How do we make money <laughs> out of that? But at the moment, what people want to pay for is the problem that we're describing. There's not so many people interested in, in, this, in this solution. Everyone, everyone know, wants to give us that idea so we can commercialize it. That, that we'll work on great. it together. Please stay behind I'd love, afterwards. I'd yeah. love to. But basically, yeah. Someone in the right beside you on the behind on the left. me, you, yeah. Very cool talk, guys. Thank you very much. Uh, I, I wonder, like, <coughs> you said about like product uh, deployment, right? And would we need to deploy it? Uh, like, is it a product at all? Like, does people need it or not, right? Yeah. But like, and I also said also that algorithm sometimes is easy to learn. So I probably would disagree with the things that. A lot of people try to <coughs> learn like how to like I don't know write XGBoost or how to use XGBoost, but actually maybe you need to learn how to write a simple API with a regression and test if there is a product or not. So I feel like maybe the wrong kind of technical skills are also like taught because if you like iterate fast with a very simple things, but you also need to know a bit about like uh, like how to deploy it, how to monitor it. Maybe it's not that bad, and maybe the other part is like, yeah, you need to, to do a lot of soft skills and, yeah. yeah. I think so. that's a very logical Im implication of everything we've said, particularly if you work in a small company born after the internet, you're probably not gonna get away with saying, I wanna be a half-stack data scientist, I heard these guys say that. You're probably gonna have to do that, and it would be a really good idea if you did built something extremely simple, even if it was manual, like the answer's always one or 42 or whatever, Test if anyone says, is 40, I keep getting 42 as the answer. Is that really right? And then you build the real model, right? Um. <laughs> yeah, no, but that's, that's a good point. Sometimes we do teach like how to mock up a quick API because sometimes that is, that is a thing that people, people need to do. Um, you know, from my experience, the, the, the challenge is that usually the, the interface between you and a business user where there is actually a value proposition being met, the interface is almost always Excel, maybe a Tableau dashboard. Um, anything more techy than that. I mean, we're talking to people who are account managers of used car dealers, so we're not talking about anyone who's ever going to call an API. Sometimes you get someone like that, and then they leave the company immediately because they realize that they're supercharged technically versus their, their actual role. Um, so that's the challenge. I mean, I guess we could teach how to take someone's horrible spreadsheet and add a column to it so that you could send it back. I guess in this case, the question, should you really need a data scientist in a company? Oh, right. <laughs> careful. <now. laughs> yeah, no, that's absolutely. another great implication 
I mean, we, but, but what, you know, what we're saying is that you shouldn't be working, as a data scientist, you shouldn't be working on problems that don't require data scientists. And so it's your job to try and find, I mean, it was Sean's job to try and find projects that actually require our skills and not just emailing spreadsheets back and forth until somebody quits. Because that, you know, that also has happened. Because it's tough to find the right data scientists, even though there's so many of them. So you don't want them to quit. This is why you should challenge your manager uh, with those awkward questions about, you know. Ultimately, all, a lot of stuff is going to get automated in the world, but also in mm. this job. But it's right. not the soft skills that are going to get it's automated. It's not design thinking, how do we convince people of stuff and tell stories. That's and how do we know what to work on? And yeah, do we work on the If someone stuff? makes that Python library, you'll be rich. <laughs> <laughs> what to work on, yeah. Any other questions? Great. That was a really insightful presentation. Thank you, Sean and uh, David. Yeah. All right. So Thanks, now, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.